All right, I know we have some visitors. Well, now I got to preach. Okay, that's all I'm going to say. Derek in Chicago asks Pastor John Piper, I've been a Christian for about a decade, and it has been a wonderful decade of growth and learning in the scriptures. I feel close to God. I know God loves me. I know he shed his blood for my life to prove that he loves me. But the question I have that I struggle with is, does God actually like me? Piper breaks this down, and I want to say this to you in his words. I don't know if you're like me, but that question resonates. And I'm sure many of you ask perhaps the same thing. Maybe you've had a family background in which there's no experience of you being enjoyed. A father or a mother or others who just simply coexisted with you. They didn't really take you into concern as of value or worth. You were tolerated, but you were rarely a delight to those around you. There weren't people around you that took spontaneous pleasure in the simple fact that you were just you. And there are many of you who, from your own experience, have no actual existential categories for grasping the fact that someone, anyone, let alone God, would actually like you. Actually enjoy you. Actually delight in you. Just being you. So the question I have for us this morning is, does God like me? If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Ephesians once again. You find ourselves in chapter 1, starting at verse 15, and I will read it for us. For this reason... <clears throat> Because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. I do not cease, verse 16, to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know, and we, I preached on this last week, what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? Thus ends the reading of the inerrant, inspired word of the living God. What we have here is Paul. Paul is, is actually praying. And he gives two requests. We see the first request in verse 17. He prays that, that they... that the Lord Jesus Christ would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That's the first request. And then we see the second request in verse 18. 
having the eyes of your heart enlightened, here it goes, that you may know, and in the second request, he prays for three things that they may know, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, and then secondarily, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And then the third was in verse 19. So now this morning, I'm going to talk about the second thing that Paul is praying that you might know, namely the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So I want to see three things. I want us to see three things this morning. First, what does it mean for God to love you? And then secondarily, I want to give biblical text to illustrate and highlight his love. And then lastly, I want to answer the question, what must you do to experience this measure of God's love? So first, what does it mean for God to love you? I just want to credit Piper for these thoughts. There are at least two dimensions of God's love. One dimension of God's love is what is called the love of benevolence. This would be God's goodwill. That's what benevolence means. It's goodwill toward an individual or toward a people group that that do not deserve it. And this is the kind of love that we encountered in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3, all the way down through verse 14. And I won't read all of it. But we see the measure of his love through those verses in the simple fact that he chose us when we did not deserve it, that, that he adopted us when we did not deserve to be in his family, that he, he redeemed us. He, he paid for the sins that, that we should have paid for, that, that he has forgiven us through his blood. This is benevolent love. This is the kind of love that we encountered in, in chapter 2, verse 4. But, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which, which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's benevolent love. That's a love that you did not deserve. That is a love that, that God in his grace and in his mercy showered on you. There, there, this, is, this is you when you were at the end of your rope. This is you when you had no hope. Outside of the fact that he demonstrated his benevolent love, verse 1, you were dead, chapter 2, in your trespasses and sins. But, but, but because of his benevolent love, before that, you once walked following the course of this world, following Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in disobedience. Before that, you were among those whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the de- desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That was who you were before you met benevolent love. Now, why did he extend this benevolent love toward us in Christ? Because in chapter 1, verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The benevolent love of Christ that I just described gained you Chapter 1, verse 4, that you would be holy and blameless before him. Now, here's the question. When you read verse 4 of chapter 1, where it says that, that you are holy and blameless before him, 
at least me and the wife, we were talking about that this morning. When I first hear that, initially my thought goes to God is telling me to be holy and blameless, that I have to walk out holiness. Now, yes, the scriptures do tell us that in Peter, be holy for I am what? Holy. But here in verse 4, it's not a practical living out of holiness. It is positional holiness. Namely, before, and what's so stunning about verse 4, I've talked about it, is this was before the foundations of the world. Before there was Saturn, before there was Neptune, before there was Pluto. I don't think there is Pluto, right? Did they, okay. Kaya, Kaya's looking at me like, dude, you got it wrong, man. My, my boy's telling me, no, okay, there's no Pluto anymore. They, they screwed us up with the solar system when I was growing up. Before there was a, before there was a let there be in any of what you see in Genesis, before there was any of those things, God positionally in Jesus made you holy and blameless. Which brings us then to the second dimension of, dimension of God's love toward us in Jesus. Because of the benevolent love that made you positionally holy and blameless before him, the dimension two of his love is yours. And that gets to our passage in verse 18 of chapter one. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know, and here's what he's praying, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now what verse 18 is telling us is something quite stunning. First, it's probably clear when you look at the text that it is an inheritance that is being given to us. Namely, God is our inheritance. He is giving us an inheritance. Now we can see that clearly in the text. At first, you can realize that the first part of the request, hope of his calling, is something for us. So it's praying something for us. He's praying for us that we would have the hope of his calling. So it only makes sense that the second part would be also something that's toward us. God giving us this inheritance, all right? Next, when it says in the saints, verse 18, it may simply mean that this glory, because this talks about this glorious inheritance, the glory of this inheritance is going to be something that happens in us, that God gives us something that just makes us glorious because he gives us something that would not make us glorious unless he gave it to us. So our inheritance will be working a glorification in us. So again, God is giving the inheritance. In verse 14 of chapter 1, who is the guarantee, this talking of the Spirit, of our inheritance. So this is again an inheritance that's being given to us. The immediate context has us at the forefront, it seems, of inheriting things that are constantly being given to us. Now, when you think of the riches, it says the riches in verse 8 of God's glory, it's almost always used by Paul as something that is for us. Whenever he talks about the riches of his glory, it's something God is constantly giving. Romans chapter 9, verse 23, Ephesians 3, 14, Philippians 4, 19, Colossians 1, 27. God gives us the riches of his glory. And then he treats us in such a way, 
that we have been given all of these things that are outlined in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Now, that is something that's clear in the text. But here's something that I don't want you to miss. Not only what Paul is highlighting here is that God gives us inheritance. Watch this. We are God's inheritance. Look at verse 18. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance? Where's the inheritance, y'all? In the saints. Okay? Also, the inheritance belongs to whom? What are the riches of what? His glorious inheritance. So who is it? Who does it belong to? It belongs to what? Him. In chapter 1, verse 14, and this is a, it's hard to kind of see why they translate it this way. But who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? It feels like we're getting it. Actually, a better translation for verse 14 should be until the redemption of the possession. With brackets in there, until the redemption of God's possession. So the possession that is being spoken of there in verse 14 is God's possession. He owns it. And this ties us back to verse 5 of chapter 1, where he says, we've been adopted. And why have you been adopted? For he did it for what? Himself. Dr. Arnold points out that this prepositional phrase in verse 14 of chapter 1 depends not on the immediate preceding clause, but on the verb, you were sealed. So if you look at verse 14, um, verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were what? Sealed. And then if I could skip that rest of that clause with the promise of the Holy Spirit, you were sealed in that verse 14, who should be until the redemption of God's possession. So you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are sealed, guaranteed, until one day God comes and takes you as his own fully and entirely. Also, this language of possession is very common. We see it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. The Bible says that you are his own possession. And then lastly, the people of God were constantly described in the generation of the Exodus in the Old Testament as his inheritance. But they are your people, your inheritance, that you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm, Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 29. So then what is it? Do we get the inheritance or does God get the inheritance? Both. It's ambiguous in the Greek and for good cause. Scholars vacillate and go back and forth. And here's the reality. Our inheritance ultimately is that what we get from God is we're going to be glorified. And what is being glorified? Us. And we are God's possession. 
verse 14. So here's the reality. The more beautiful and glorious we become because of the inheritance that we gain from him, the more beautiful a possession that he has in us. If our inheritance is that we are present tense, verse 4, if our inheritance is that we are holy and blameless and he owns us that are holy and blameless, then he has in us an inheritance that brings him pleasure because the inheritance that he has in us is always holy. We are holy, we are becoming holy, and we will be practically holy one day. In other words, the inheritance that we gain from God makes us into an inheritance for God that is worthy of God's delight. Are you with me? Are you following me? Like creation that came from God's hand. It came from his hand and he said, let there be. And after every let there be, what did he declare? It's good. It's good. Whatever comes from the hand of God is his delight. What about your salvation? Did any of your salvation come from you? Was there any part of you that worked your salvation? You are called a new what? Creation. The salvation and justification that he gave you, the salvation and the sanctification of you becoming holy, and the, and the salvation of the glorification that will be soon enough, all came from his hand. And when he looked at it, when Jesus Christ died on the cross and he shed his blood and he said, it is finished, the father looked and said, that's good. That's my delight. In other words, the salvation that God wrought in you in his creative work redemptively is something that he looks at and finds pleasure and joy and delight in. Jesus likes you. And here's the amazing thing. And let me give an aside. Talking about children. Jesus liked children. I just want to give an encouragement. This may be hard for some of you to hear. But I just want to encourage you guys just to vote no on Proposition 1. As I'm thinking about God's creation. God creates every child in the womb. And this proposition is a constitutional amendment in California that's going to codify abortion rights. And it's going to give unlimited access to abortions throughout even the late-term pregnancy. In other words, you can, get a, you can get an abortion at nine months. Again, I was rubbing my daughter, uh, her stomach, just the other day in awe of the reality that I was touching my grandchild. And to think that we would look at that and say that it's something that we can choose to expend. It breaks my heart and it's unimaginable to me.
And so church, I just want to encourage you. Let's be in concert with the very heart of the God that we say we serve. Every life comes from his hand. Before the foundations of the world, he knew you. Before you were in your mother's womb, he knew you. You had a name. And here's the amazing thing. When God, by his love of benevolence, saves us and counts us righteous in Christ, he gives us his Holy Spirit, does he not? And here's the reality. First, the moment you get the Holy Spirit, you are a delight to God. He likes us because he sees in us what was not there before, namely himself. And secondarily, when verse 14 begins to happen, the guarantee of the Holy Spirit, you actually begin to transform. And it restores the aspects of our personhood that are a delight to God, pleasing to him, which he genuinely likes about us. You see, what God is doing, not only in your justification, what God is doing in your sanctification in you right now through the power of the Holy Spirit is he is doing things in you to reflect the very things that he likes. And this is why it says, In verse 13 of chapter 1, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now watch what happens when the Spirit comes into you. This passage in Romans chapter 8, 7 through 9 says it all. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So there is a part where you do not please God. If you don't know Jesus today as your Lord, Savior, and treasure, then he is not pleased. Because you are dead in your trespasses and sins, because you are under the rule of the God of this age, and because your flesh is your God. And so you cannot please God. But look at the implications of verse 9. You, however are not in the what, but you're in the what. If, in fact, the Spirit of God, what, dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So, in other words, the only way that you can actually please God is to have the Spirit. The question becomes is, when you come to Jesus, what do you get? The Spirit. Therefore, the Spirit of God that is in you is rotting a work, not only from a justification standpoint, holy and blameless, but He's doing things in you to shape you and reshape you and make you into the very image of Christ. And those are the things that He just loves about you. 
think Piper's thoughts are good here. He says, I know this is hard to believe and hard to feel for many people because our experience is that if there's any part of our lives that is imperfect, that's what others are going to pick up and complain about. They're not going to spot anything good or like us for it. They're going to spot what we haven't yet accomplished for goodness. And they're going to be displeased by it. I can resonate with that in my own story. Growing up, I was kind of the litter of the bunch in my larger family. I've kind of talked about it. My mom had nine brothers and sisters. And so we had tons and tons of cousins. And we used to kick it in Compton all the time, doing backflips on my grandmother's lawn, playing Monopoly, just being kids. But there was a set of us cousins, and I was kind of the runt of that set. Um, and obviously, with all those kids, there was a lot of sets of cousins. We were the oldest set, but I was the younger of the older set. And not only that, in my neighborhood, because of my small stature, I got bullied by gangbangers and all those different types of things. And the message that I got when I was growing up, basically, whether it was in my family context, in my neighborhood, was, we'll like you if you can dance, if you can run fast, if you can put a ball in a hoop, you can jump high. So at a young age, it was hardwired in me to work, to discover what made me likable to this crowd or this person growing up. My mother, my aunties and uncles, and one teacher. Those are the only relationships that I could point to that liked Ray Ray. They called me Ray Ray just for being Ray Ray. My mom delighted in me just for me being me. I was an asthmatic. I was always sick, always in the hospital always shorter than everybody else. But my mom, she liked Ray, just for Ray Ray being Ray Ray. So overall, you know how I lived? I lived to prove I was worthy of your delight. It just was clear to me that if my coach is going to like me, I got to perform. If my teachers are going to like me, I got to perform. If my cousins are going to like me, I got to perform. If that girl's going to like me, I got to perform. And now I find myself as a middle-aged man. I find myself still busy in relationships around me, doing all I can to get people to like me. Try to get my wife to like me, my kids to like me family to like me, a friend. And each one of you here, under the sound of my voice, I try to perform so that you'll just like Ray Ray. Now, I don't question, do you love me? But do you like me? 
And for many of those relationships that I just outlined, it's no fault of their own. I know my wife likes me. I know my kids like me. I know my family and friends and so many of you like me. But because it was so hardwired in me as a kid, I fight hard to believe it. And even now I'm exploring how that affects even my relationship with God. And maybe this is the way you relate both to others and God. You know they love you. You know he loves you. But you relate to him and others in such a way that you believe that if you do this or that, or if you don't do this or that, if you avoid this or that, then you will increase or decrease his pleasure in you. The problem with this is that during spiritual dry seasons in your life, when God seems silent or distant, when suffering comes and you tell yourself, I deserve this because of the things I've done or because of missteps that I had in my walk with the Lord, or because maybe you're not measuring up in some way that you yourself has defined as measuring what it means for God to finally look at you and say, I like you. And so then, your wonder of God's delight is constantly vacillating. And you just never know from day to day just how much God really loves and cares for you. And at the bottom, some of you feel like we can never really be liked. Liked by God or liked by others. Because the focus is always on your shortcomings rather than even your little successes. Well, I want to tell you this morning that is a faulty belief system that many of you subconsciously are operating in and you don't even see it. God is not like that. God sees not only who you are positionally, holy, but you know what he sees? He sees those incremental advances of your transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it makes him happy. He delights in those things. Just that small expression of gratitude that welled up in your heart that wasn't there before, God likes that. You might have been grumpy the whole day, but that little bit of just thanksgiving that rose up in your heart, God delights in that. God doesn't decide whom to like quantitatively. As if when you finally reach 51% goodness, he's like, oh, cool, now I like you. But then when you go to 49%, nah, I don't like you now. What God sees in us is not quantity, but real Holy Spirit wrought produced fruit. And every one of your little advances of new, real, spiritual regeneration in your life is a great delight to God even if it's mixed with sinful attitudes. Do you hear me? Even if it's short in its, in its true expression of purity. You want to know why? 
because those are God's work in you. And it would be demeaning to look at the very things that God is doing in you to make you delightful to him and say, God, you don't like that. He shed his blood. He rose from the dead that he might look at you with delight. Kevin DeYoung tells an illustration that I think is so clear. A father asking their child, parents, we do this. Hey, baby girl, I need you to go clean your room. So you, the kid runs up to the room. And you can hear the child in the room. Doing all, just making a bunch of noise. You can hear that, that those efforts in that room of that child. That child is trying so hard to just clean that room up. So finally the kid runs out and says, Daddy, I'm done. I'm done. Well, your kid is eight years old. What do you think that room's going to look like? For the father, he walks in the room. He can clearly see it needs some help. But you know what a good father does at that moment? I'm so glad you tried. It's such a delight for me to see you working so hard. I am delighted in the fact that you want me to delight in you. And you already have it, my daughter. And so now let me just come alongside you. And I'm going to teach you more how to clean this room up a little bit better. But every step of the way, I just want you to know, you are my pleasure. Sometimes we even do it with a sour attitude. Go clean your room. Ah! Ah! Dead! Ah! I can't stand that tone. That, that, when that tone, when that, it's like, ah! If you want to punish your, your parents, kids, do that. I got your back. Even in that, God's delight in you doesn't wane one bit. You still belong to him. And he loves you being you. So I just want to you now. I don't know where you are. But what the text is saying here is, what does it mean for God to love you? You are his inheritance. You got to let that land, church. We're talking about God here who owns all things in a cattle, on all, who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. This is the God who is fully satisfied in himself. He doesn't need anything outside of himself to be at complete rest, peace, contentment, and joy. And yet he chooses you in Christ 
as his inheritance. And you don't think he doesn't delight in you? That's stunning. If you know yourself, you should be floored right now. This is the measure of his love toward you in Jesus. And so I just want some biblical texts to just wash over your soul right now. I want you to hear God say it. Psalm 35, 27. Let those who delight in my righteousness, and if you're a Christian today, you delight in his righteousness. You may not be fully righteous, but do you want to be? Oh, come on, man. If I could right now, God, if you could just pull a switch. I so badly want to stop doing the things that I do that hurt the people around me. I want to stop shaming your name in the ways that I do. He says, shout for joy and be glad. And say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. God delights in your welfare. He's not looking and just like, oh, I'm so glad you're suffering right now. I'm so glad life is hard for you. I'm just so indifferent to the challenges and struggles that are going on in your life. No, he delights in your welfare. Proverbs eleven twenty. Those of crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord. But those of blameless, anybody blameless in here? Anybody blameless in here? Do you got Jesus in you? Did you read Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4? Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. Are you blameless? Okay. All right. Hey, fine. Y'all don't be blameless. I'm blameless. But those of us blameless, but those of blameless ways are his what? Delight. Psalm 147, 10 through 11. His delight, watch this is not in the strength of horses. His delight is not in your performance, nor his pleasure in the legs of man. His delight isn't how well you do, how good you do it, whether you're succeeding, whether you're reaching your goals, whether you got 10,000 likes, 10 million likes, or zero likes. He is not concerned about the simple fact that you've gone this far or you've gone this far, or maybe you've just gone this far. That is not his pleasure. What does the text say? But the Lord takes pleasure in those who what? Fear him. And those who what? Hope in his steadfast love. Is Jesus your hope today? That's where his delight is. That's where his pleasure is. It's not in you performing. It's not in you doing better. It's not in you checking off the box. If all you have today is hope in God, then he is delighted in you right now. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he what? As a father, the son in whom he delights. I know you don't see it up there. Verse 12. Delights. Even when God is whooping our tail, come on, 
You get them, some of y'all need some, well, we all need whoopings. Come on, come on, man. Come on, man. But it's when you're getting whooped, that's when you think God doesn't delight in you. But God is telling you the reason I'm whooping you is because I delight in you. Because I know if you go down that road, you're going to lose me in the process. And so I got to whoop you to get you to stay here. Because guess what? I want you to stay close to me. I delight in you. In Psalm 149, verse 4, for the Lord takes pleasure. Watch this. What do you take pleasure in? Is his people. <laughs> Are you his people? In Jesus, you're his people. He just takes pleasure in the fact that you are his. So as I close, what must you do to experience this measure of love? Well, Ephesians chapter 1 is a prayer. And Paul prays in verse 18, that you may know having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. You know what Paul is praying here? He's praying that you have an existential experience of God's delight in you. If it's something that you could will, he would have told you to will it. But Paul doesn't say, go do what you got to do to make sure that you can see that God delights in you. What does he do? He prays. I can't will it. This is something that God also has to give you. You see, Paul is praying to the Ephesian church that they would experience something that they can't will or rot in themselves. You see, church, it's not your strength that you're going to come to allow for what I just preached on the day to land at a heart level. You can't will it. And so the question becomes is what must you do to experience this measure of love? Ask for it. Ask God for an existential experience of what it means that he smiles upon you right now in Jesus. That his pleasure and delight is in you because of Christ. And so I want you to pray. Pray Ephesians 1, 16 through 18. That God would give you this gift. That he give you through his word the hard experience of his delight in you. That you might be more rooted and grounded in his love. And so as we prepare our hearts for communion right now, I want to encourage you, if you will. encourage you to pray Ephesians 1 16 through 18 for yourselves right now 
God, will you help me see? God, will you help me see? Just how much. Not that you only love me, but that you like me. God, you actually like me. Just ask the Holy Spirit right now to minister that reality and that truth that is yours in Christ. And then we will, in just a moment, commune together. the elements Paul said to the Corinthian church for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed he took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me let's take the bread together In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us proclaim together. God, your blood is a declaration that you delight in us. As we have partaken communion together, God, let us together as one church experience more of that delight. That God, we would know that we are precious to you, that you value us, that you like us. All of our quirks, our personalities, 
You like us so much that your spirit dwells in us and you are with us always. You're never bored or tired of our presence. And you can't wait till one day you fully glorify us and gain the inheritance that is due your name in us. God, help us to experience existentially that truth. Spirit of God, do the work in each heart that needs to experience that in a way that only you can. I pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody say it.